0: This is not just any week in history. Every four years on January 20th, there's a transfer of power. And as folks who work to repair the world in ways large and small, this week every four years warrants some reflection. Even if a president is reelected, there are challenges and opportunities to consider, but I'd be remiss to say that this January 20th is not like any other. This presidential election has not been like any other. Maybe there's been a time when the world seems so deeply polarized, where citizens are angry and disappointed in their government, and not as much because of who was elected, but that. But more also about the how. Democracy is a privilege, and somehow or another it's turned into a real-life version of that late 90s MTV show Celebrity Deathmatch. So, here's what I think is worth talking about. How do we manage in an environment like this? How do we lead? Emotions so high skepticism and leadership, higher still. You know, I could have gone and found a first-rate mediator to come and talk with us today, but I chose a different path. As a certified mediator myself, I guess I could have offered my own two cents, but mediation requires something I don't think we have, parties willing to seek what mediators call the third story, more commonly known as common ground. It seems that people with these deep ideological differences can't even have a conversation. And that's what I want to talk about how to lead in this brave new world, frightening for some of you and perhaps a new opportunity for others. Most importantly, we need to learn how to talk with one another. Welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it and she is here to help. My guest today is Parisa Parsa. She's the executive director of an organization called Essential Partners, an organization that is advancing the work of the Public Conversations Project, a nonprofit that has worked for more than 25 years to facilitate difficult conversations. They have a unique method. They facilitate directly, and they equip folks with those skills. Parisa brings years of congregational, denominational, and nonprofit leadership, focused on training and cultivating others as leaders to build strong, healthy organizations. Prior to joining Essential Partners, Parisa served as the director of congregational development for the New England Unitarian Universalist Association, strengthening leaders and congregations throughout through leadership development, change management. An ordained minister, Parisa has served in leadership roles for faith-based and social services organizations all across the country. Parisa, I'm really glad you are able to join us this morning for this conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Joan.
0: So, Parisa, you and I have had a prep conversation, and we talked about how things feel chaotic and out of control for people on all places on the political spectrum. As we know, the unknown is not a very comfortable place. Social sector leaders have, I think, a unique role to play in our society. We, We call that to lead, right? How do leaders lead with a grounded vision in a time that's filled with such chaos? What do you think?
1: Well, I think that we need to be able to hold on to the truest and deepest parts of what uh, convicts us to our mission and uh, what keeps us in the work uh, more than ever as we deal with this um, landscape of so much shifting sands and, um, you know, it almost feels like nobody can tell what end is up. And in that kind of environment, you're tempted to sort of grasp at any hold. And I think the more we can recall ourselves to whatever it is that holds us most firmly, um, and keeps us centered is really critical at this, this time. Um, it can be tempting to think that we have to be at, um, every rally or every um, gathering or every, you know, respond to every tweet that comes uh, our way. (laughs) And I think the most important thing, especially for nonprofit leaders where we're often dealing in these climates of limited resources and limited energy and such a high rate of burnout is to um, get really clear about what our distinct purpose and mission is and to live it fully.
0: Yeah, I, I, Actually, my wife and I had this very same conversation as I was thinking about what message I wanted to communicate this during this particular week. And she said, people just have to really focus on what it is they do and why it's important. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, you know, have a lot of clients uh, who are thinking about this very question, obviously. And I hear, I hear leaders use words like battle. I hear Mm -hmm. people use words like crisis plan. Certainly on the progressive side of the aisle, mm-hmm. and, but it doesn't it feel like everybody in Washington has, or sort of everyone in the United States has like bought, went out and bought a pair of boxing gloves, mm-hmm. and 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 is this a helpful paradigm for nonprofits to use? And how should they think about it differently if it's not?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think that the boxing gloves analogy, that sort of always being prepared for battle, is um, one of those things we can we can do at the expense of um, that groundedness in the core convictions that we just talked about. And um, the way I've been thinking about it is to be a little less like Rocky and a little more like the karate kid. Right. (laughs) So we're looking for that way to maintain our balance and grace and also lean into our strength, right? We want to have the strength to know when is exactly the right moment to respond rather than expending too much energy on fighting every single battle that comes our way. Um, And I think one of the things, of course, coming from this... uh, religious realm um, I'm often inspired by leaders who talk about the life of prayer but I think regardless of your religious convictions um, making sure that you take that we take extra time to do that reflective practice that helps us move from that place of the deepest um, values that we have is one of the ways to make sure that uh, in a crisis we can respond not with um, Reactivity that can exacerbate the crisis, um, but instead with um, with the kind of um, continuity that helps us, even if the crisis doesn't end up going our way, you know if, even if we are about to lose the battle, right. knowing that we have behaved and performed in ways that are absolutely consistent with our values and our beliefs and convictions. So one of the famous uh, quoted things from um, Dag Hammarskjold, who was um, head of the United Nations uh, in its early years, was that he, as a man of faith, got up every morning an hour early in order to pray. And when things were especially busy, he got up two hours early to pray, you know. So not letting go of that time for reflection and for um, grounding oneself or one's organization in a time like this is really important.
0: Of course, there are some listeners (laughs) say i already get up two hours early to read my email um but the concept is a good one certainly yeah yeah so um you have on your website which do i have this right is uh www.whatisessential.org is that correct Correct. okay good um a uh a downloadable pdf that if by the end of this podcast you have not downloaded it we have done something wrong um it is called reaching across the red blue divide and um i found a lot of great value in it and w- w- one of the questions i think would be really helpful what are the keys to making a difficult conversation productive and maybe you should even tease out for folks what productive looks like, and I, I'm looking particularly at the, the sort of the introduction to your uh, this PDF, which I found to be real valuable.
1: Mm-hmm. For me, w- what productive looks like is that the part the folks who are party to the conversation leave uh, with their sense of self worth intact. That. Um, that you might actually find points where you might be able to work together, that your future work isn't compromised, but actually might be uh, magnified or uh, somehow deepened by the conversation that you just had, Um, and that each party can leave with a little more insight. Um, So it's Productive isn't about reaching agreement necessarily, but about reaching some understanding, an understanding that you didn't have coming into the conversation. And the things that are key to that are really um, being willing, at least for the moment of coming together in conversation, to set aside the need to persuade and emphasize...
0: Boy, that's easier developing. said than done, isn't it? Right?
1: I know. Oh, I my know. goodness. Because we feel desperate to persuade, especially in a climate of such polarization. Well, right? and
0: especially, I mean, when you think about, when I think about my listeners, they're sort of in the business of, you know, advocacy is about, you know, fighting. I'm not fighting exactly, but like persuasion and, you know, there's righting the wrongs. Like it feels pers- mm-hmm. like very persuasive, Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And one of the things I think is good to remember is when you know you're preparing for a difficult conversation, you can hold the frame of really intentionally, um, just you don't need to let go of that core uh, way of being that is about being an advocate or, you know, that core, if it's core to your identity and the work that you do, that advocacy is so important you're you're not compromising that to set it aside for the time of the conversation and say i am this my purpose right now is just to understand right right i'm go- i can pick right back up with the advocacy and maybe that understanding can help me be more effective with the advocacy good point but for this time i'm going to create this sort of we talk about dialogue allowing for a little time out of time right where you can just push a little bit of that that you work with all the time uh to the side in order to focus really clearly on how do we understand each other
0: one of the things i that i um that I've learned in reading uh, uh, lots of different books is that um <clears throat> A, that difficult conversations are super scary, that we avoid them. And, mm-hmm. and mostly we just don't think the conversation is going to get anywhere because no one feels particularly heard or valued. And what I've also learned, uh, George Lakoff is really good on explaining this. A uh, great author, he writes a book called, uh, I think it's called, don't think, don't, think an an pink, don't think of a pink, don't think of a pink, don't think of an elephant. Correct. Yeah. Right. Often the conversations totally backfire because what they actually do is reinforce someone's existing frame or point of view and actually makes them more steadfast in what they believe. hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. So um, the method that I mentioned earlier um, that you use is called reflective structured dialogue. Um, I think cleverly called RSD. <laughs> 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 rolls okay. right off the tongue that's right exactly so um can you pretend that i'm 10 years old which emotionally you wouldn't be that far off and ex- and explain to me sort of briefly and the people can certainly go to your website to learn more but what's at the heart of rsd reflective structured dialogue
1: so that pattern that you mentioned of the conflicts the, the reason that we avoid The tough conversations is that we often find ourselves in this pattern, the the vicious cycle, right? We see our we are we experience something provocative. Someone asks a question that triggers us, right? That helps that makes us feel defensive, and then we move into this place where we're scared and we're looking for the next threat to come our way, right? So this is where you get those really quick um, reactions we're vigilant and then we're attacking or defending our position, right? Yep. We're either saying, I know you are, but what am I? Or we're um, rubber in someone else's glue. We're <laughs> we're doing that. I'm using the 10-year-old. <laughs> Thank um, you very much. I appreciate that. And, and the moment that we get into the attack and defend we're inviting another trigger really right so the response is going to be something else that will trigger us and then it just keeps going right and that snowballs into um, this uncontrollable thing and we have a terrible experience and we say i'm never going to do that again and why would we yep so reflective structured dialogue works to create enough of a structure around how we have the conversation so that we can set up a constructive cycle. And the key pieces of that are um, learning to ask questions that open us up beyond the attack and defend, to really listen to the answers, to take time to reflect on what we want to next say and then to respond. So it's this ask, listen, reflect, respond that creates a different kind of cycle that invites us into a different kind of relationship that builds new understanding.
0: Well, I think the key here is that you lead with an ask, right? I I, um, I think this whole notion of curiosity kind of runs through um, much of what I, what I know about your organization. And um, for those listeners who are old enough, I actually approach my work this way. I consider it, um, there was a show on in the 1970s called Columbo. And I, um, <clears throat> I fancy myself, to, like I try to think like Columbo, which is rather than making a statement like, wow, you have quite a mess on your hands here. Yeah. You know, I might just actually ask a question so that they reveal themselves what that what that mess is and what it looks like. So it, it does feel like the question is pretty key. Um, so we are talking to Parisa Parsa, the Executive Director of Essential Partners, an organization that is advancing the work of the Public Conversations Project. They've worked for more than 25 years to facilitate difficult conversations and equip people to have conversations what, about what is most essential to be able to move forward. As couples, families, and my particular interest, this particular week as a nation, and <clears throat> you will find them at www.whatisessential.org. Parisa, the, the reflective structured dialogue sounds just right. It sounds like it makes sense. Can you offer our listeners an example of success you've had? So, in
1: a community setting, one of the places where they've really taken up the work of reflective, structured dialogue as a practice for a whole town is Gloucester, Massachusetts, with a project called Gloucester Conversations. Now, Gloucester is a small town uh, on the on Cape Ann in Massachusetts, and um, a historic fishing village, long storied history. You might know it from the film, The Perfect Storm.
0: I actually and, know, I think I actually know it because like, isn't like Gordon, Gordon's fried foods like yes. made there or something?
1: Yeah. I don't and know why I know an, that. The former original Bird's Eye Factory, uh, a recent subject of controversy. Um, the uh, So the community was facing all kinds of controversy, um, over one issue after another. Um, it's a community that is very devoted, you know, longtime residents who are really devoted to the history and preservation of the town, and it's facing all the changes that every town in America is facing around challenges economically and, um, you know, pressures around growth and um, change of every kind. Um, so they made news a year when 18 girls in the public school got pregnant, um, and There were huge fights over birth control. There were fights over a new charter school going in not too long after that, Um, fights over that bird's eye factory and what would become of the waterfront and the changing economic landscape in the town. One thing after another came up. And folks who had participated in our trainings, and one of our trainers actually is a resident of Gloucester, very involved in the community, decided that they wanted to come together in kitchen table conversations um, across the town. Um, They had 100 kitchen tables um, with uh, 76 people uh, involved in these conversations that began over the prospect of putting a sculpture sculpture that had been donated by a particular sculptor um a renowned sculptor David Black in a particular park and so the question was should we put this sculpture in this park and okay. there was all kinds of controversy over that there was also all, simultaneously controversy over people in uh, a homeless day shelter and people finding uh, associating that with um drug use and finding heroin syringes, things were kind of exploding all over the place. And as they set about having these kitchen table conversations, they started to ask questions that were bigger than, should there be this homeless day shelter? What should the hours be for that homeless day shelter? Mm -hmm. What kind of rules should we have around it? Should we put this sculpture in this park? To start to ask bigger questions. So that the community could really engage in the meaning questions that were driving the different positions about the different things. So should we put this sculpture in this park became what do we want in our public art? Where are the best places to show the public the art that we have as a product of our community? How do we want to experience art in this historic community? If it's modern art in a historic community. What does that mean, and what does that look like?
0: And, and um, I'm going to bet you found, in, in in the asking of those questions in that discussion, you started to find common threads.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So it wasn't that, so the way that it can get pitted and, you know, when you're talking about art is there are the people who hate art <laughs> and the people who are, are advocates of it or the people who want to preserve a park for a particular thing, you know, the the old guard and the new guard. You can cast it any number of ways, but you start to fall into these camps. And actually, when you open up the question, you can say, we do want, most of us do want art in in the public sphere, but we also want to have a say in how it happens and where it happens and where it's placed and we want to know what it means to put it in a particular place and not have that sort of thrust upon us as something we then have to respond to And the same with um, with a homeless day shelter you know the question isn't do we want to uh, do we want to cast people out and not have a place for, homeless folks to be in our community. It's um, how do we want to be in relationship with that? What does it mean to have this shelter and how can we all feel like we have a say and a place in uh, supporting it in some way? So what's happened in Gloucester is that now when there is an issue of concern, uh, folks are requesting that Gloucester conversations help by shaping a conversation about the issue before they start to get into these divided camps about the next controversial thing. We know the controversies aren't going to go away. We're all uh, in a pluralistic society where we have so many different kinds of people coming together, people's reactions are going to vary all over the place. And at our best, we want to be coming together with uh, all of those responses. We don't want to be suppressing some um, for the sake of getting along. Uh, That's what creates the huge explosions later when people are just sick and tired of it and can't take it anymore. But we wanna create the practices so that communities know how to come together and understand the meaning and the power of asking that bigger question.
0: In your work with them, I assume that you provided them with the tools and the training to equip them to have those kitchen conversations?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so all of our work is... So So the Gloucester Conversations has been entirely led by that community. Right. Um, and it's been supported by our uh, practitioners' involvement, um, but also by much many of the core leaders taking our training and taking it back to their community. That, Perfect. for us, is the ideal.
0: So, okay, it's time for us to play... Not play. Uh, it's time to use me as a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, just try to bring this to life for people because what you're talking about, like if I could put some of this in practice in a conversation with my 22-year-old twins, or my 27-year-old daughter, or my wife, or my next-door neighbor, like the world would be such a better place. But um, so I, I don't want our listeners to lose sight of the broader implications of what we're talking about, even though I have set this up as about. Um, our nation in a particularly polarized place. So uh, let's, let's try this out on me, Parisa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so what do what do I do? I, I make a. I'm gonna. Do I make a statement? And like, yeah. Take so me through this exercise. really. Let's, let's do it briefly.
1: Yeah, this is an exercise that we do in our trainings just to illustrate the power. Uh, the so we often think of ourselves as being great question askers, great curious people. Um, we consider ourselves at all intelligent. We think that, you know, our curiosity has something to do with that. And we're often not aware of how um, the way we shape and frame a question can shape a whole conversation and, in fact, a whole relationship. So we like to do this exercise just to Illustrate the difference in The stark difference in how What's driving a question can really Change the conversation So you're going to make a statement about something you believe To be true and first I'm going to ask You questions that are Trying to persuade you
0: Okay um, And Certainly advocates make a lot of statements So um, it, this would Not be a, a foreign Turf for me or any listener here Right Um uh, I believe that healthcare care is a fundamental human right.
1: So what about who who's supposed to pay for that health care? I mean, it all costs money, so where is that supposed to come from?
0: Uh, okay, so i'm I guess so I you will, can respond. yeah, no, I know i'm thinking I'm thinking about how to respond and thinking that. I believe that it should be a shared responsibility, that I do believe that the government has a role to play in the protection and care of its citizens. And I also believe that citizens have an obligation to um, share in that as well.
1: So what happens when the costs are so high and the government has so many other obligations? Are we supposed to give up having an adequate defense for our nation in a time of international turmoil in order to make sure that everybody goes to the doctor? I
0: I don't ever see anything as a sort of a both, as an either or. I kind of see it as a both and and as something where you set priorities based on – sort of you know based on what's happening in the universe at a particular time but i do think that the health and well-being of our citizens is core to whether we make good decisions whether we live in the world effectively like it feels really fundamental to me
1: well you did a very good job of not taking the bait (laughs) joan
0: all right what was what was was the bait
1: well, just to get into a, a more defensive posture and um, and then attack government priorities or do, you know, so the 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 pushing of persuasion is, you know, it gets you into that attack, defend.
0: So let's do it again. Let's, let's do it again. And I, you want me to be a jerk this time? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Now, but,
1: you know, uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. I'm
0: I'm a jerk. I I, I like that stricken from the record. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you want me to say, I believe healthcare is a a fundamental right. Let's try it again. So I believe healthcare is a fundamental right. Ask me the same question, Parisa. So who's going to pay for it? I think the government should pay for it. So what about the government's other
1: priorities? How is it supposed to make sure that we have, I mean, we have... Nobody wants to raise taxes, and we already pay too much in taxes. So, what's going to happen when we face a really huge threat? And yeah, but what our- happens? What
0: what happens to me when I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm stricken with an illness that keep that that doesn't allow me to go to work, and I I can't actually afford, uh, you know, I can't afford to pay for my own health care. So I go to so I go to some kind of subpar doctor who causes me more harm than good.
1: don't you have friends and family who can help you out no we all want to be able to work on to work for our own health care and cover our own costs that's how how this nation was built
0: no I think that our our, uh, I, I disagree with you completely Parisa because I think that our nation was built um on the foundation that yes of course citizens should Pull themselves up by their bootstraps, whatever bootstraps are, and that the government also has an obligation. I mean, why do we have a government if it isn't to protect and defend and 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 c- compassionately care for its citizens? Or how how is that better? Yes. Okay.
1: So yeah, that's that's exactly it. So I got to be the jerk actually. But, <laughs> <yeah>. um, <laughs> um, so then the next thing would be. Um, for you to make the same statement and me to ask you the questions to understand.
0: Okay. So now I'm going to make the same state. So I'm making the same statement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I, I believe that like Canada, <laughs> which is looking more and more appealing to me, um, <laughs> this is, says the uh, person who tries to be even handed. Um <clears throat> I believe that it's a right of every citizen to have uh, good quality healthcare.
1: So, would you tell me a story about something in your experience that has led you to that belief?
0: Sure. Um, well, I you know I have kids who roll off of my who um, uh, roll off of my coverage at age when they turn age twenty seven and um and one of them has a job but that doesn't pay benefits and i uh i worry a great deal about either her inability to pay for she has some pre-existing conditions and i worry about her ability to pay for those without um really jeopardizing her financial stability or looking to me and my wife to do that um and whether or not we have the capacity to do that mm.
1: What's at the heart of the matter for you when you think about your, both your family and our society?
0: I guess what's at the heart of it for me is that I feel like, um, I, 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 I feel like my daughter works hard. She just doesn't have a job that pays benefits. Um, I, I wish I could actually tackle that issue, but I, I, I don't think I can. She actually really loves her job. But I, I feel like somebody should be in her corner, and I maybe that's what I feel like government is fundamentally about.
1: I think that's a good okay. example of the difference. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: how <clears throat> uh,
1: do we have time to go into the differences between those?
0: Real quickly, and then we're going to close. Yeah.
1: On. So, how did what, what felt different in the? Did you see the? Did you could you hear the difference in the quality of conversation between those two? modes of asking and engaging.
0: The second one made me think about my position. Mm. And made me you you gently asked me to bring it to life in some way that that made it more than a statement but a live part I was able to communicate a lived experience um that helped I, that helped me understand my position and maybe actually helped you understand my position.
1: Mhm. Yeah. And it also got us to the human concerns that are behind the different you know, policy or political statements that we make. And the human concerns are what the policies and politics are supposed to be protecting and guarding and uh, working for. So the closer we get to those human concerns, the more we can create policies and um, political positions that are aligned with them rather than confusing the political positions for those deeper concerns.
0: Yeah, very, in- that was really, that was really very interesting. Um, so we, um, just one more question, I think, um, and, and I believe you said some of this earlier, but I just want to just leave with this question for you. Um, regardless of the, the uh, of your ideological, uh, Position in the universe as a nonprofit leader. Um, Any last piece of advice for leaders as we move into what are both unchartered and what are likely to be very choppy waters? Yeah, I think
1: I would reiterate that um, relationship and understanding, I mean, especially for organizations that are working with people on different sides of an issue or are advocates for a particular side of an issue and want to stay connected and in relationship, that the more we can maintain or realize the fact that our core convictions don't have to be compromised simply by having a conversation, that, you know, our strong convictions are not going to go away for going to the table with someone who believes differently. Um, in fact, there usually uh, our 27 years of practice have shown that people coming together across huge divides don't usually come away persuaded to the other side's position, but they do come away with deeper understanding, with a greater willingness to work together on issues that are of common concern, and um, a greater trust in the ability to get their work done without dehumanizing the other side. And that feels like a huge thing in this landscape, right? Can we profoundly disagree without losing our humanity by dehumanizing others?
0: Um, And I think that's where we're going to leave it, other than the fact that I think that it's possible that my blog post might be called the Karate Kid this week. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, So, um, Parisa, thank you very much. I think I feel like this conversation gave me me some hope and some tools I I believe can be of value, and I hope the same is true for our listeners. You can learn more about Parisa's work and how you might be able to engage her team in working with you, your communities, your organizations at www.whatisessential.org. And I wanna make a special note, on the homepage of the website, you can download a PDF I think is absolutely terrific. It's called, Reaching Across the Red-Blue Divide. It's nonpartisan. It is super practical. A guide how to be effective on social media, do's and don'ts in the office. I would strongly encourage you as sort of, I don't know, in this time of a transfer of power and change for you to set aside a kind of a brown bag lunch, have everybody read this thing and really talk and listen to each other about its implications. Um, so thank you very much, Carissa, for joining thank us. Thank
1: you, Joan. It's really a pleasure to talk with you always.
0: Always. Um, we are totally out of time. Until next time, thank you for everything you do. And remember that even on the toughest days, nonprofit work is a privilege. Take care.
1: Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's Leadership Blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.